Conversations with Matt Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer, everybody, and of course it is. Of course it's me. Uh, if you're a regular listener of my show and you're noticing that the music is uh, at the opening there is a little different, that because, that because, that's because it's Jimmy Dale Gilmore and the Flatlanders, and Jimmy Dale Gilmore is my guest today, and I'm very excited to have him on here. It's a really great episode. If you're uh, unfamiliar with Mr. Jimmy Dale Gilmore, uh, he's a country musician. He's a great individual. He's also done some work with Dave Alvin, and we talk about all of these things and much, much more in this episode. Uh, If you're a first-time listener and you're here because you're a Jimmy Dale Gilmore fan, uh, please check out my other episodes. I've interviewed a lot of uh, musicians like Dave Alvin Um, and some others, also some artists and the novelist. People who are passionate is who I want to talk to. And um, So I'm proud of my podcast. Please check out some more episodes. I would also like to thank Danny Bland, who's a four-time, three-time guest on this podcast. And uh, he helped make this happen. He also helped get me Dave Alvin. So he's a good guy, and I greatly appreciate him. Quick note about the show, just... uh, and I keep... uh, uh, I keep recording these intros, and I keep forgetting this crucial point. Uh, during one, at towards the end of the interview, Jimmy Dale Gilmore's phone went out, and uh, like it was fuzz and static, and you know that kind of fun thing. And then he came back, and we continued talking, and I edited that out because I don't want you know if you if you got headphones on, you don't want to hear that staticky weirdness. So I um, edited that out. Usually, I edit things, and there's a smooth transition, and you don't even know that we stop talking or whatever, but I couldn't do it. There wasn't anything to link where we ended up going in the static time. So um, so if there's a weird time jump towards the end when we're talking about his son and then we start talking about where he's living, now you know why. I just don't want you to, th- if you're a first-time listener, I don't want you to think I'm uh, unprofessional. Maybe I should just get some like uh, fancy music to play for that time, like some elevator music just to fill that space. And then you'll know that there was a boo-boo in the podcast. So that's it. Um, I'm very excited about this episode. I think you're going to love it. I didn't want this to, like, literally, I didn't want to get off the phone with Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Or I wished we could just be like, hey, let's go to the diner and get a cup of coffee and some pie and keep talking. That's what I really wanted to do. Um, Anyway, great episode. Please enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Here's Jimmy Dale Gilmore. A lot of great young musicians around Austin. I've, I've gotten to know a few of them because of my son, Colin. Oh, does he play music as well? Yeah, uh-huh. He's a, he's a songwriter and good, pretty good uh, singer and guitarist and good writer, really good writer. How does that make you feel as a dad that uh, your son's following somewhat in your footsteps? Oh, I, I love it. Well, I... I love his music a whole lot. I, I kind of uh, because of you know the the world has become so um, what unpredictable. Not, not just now, not just with the pandemic, but already you know for musicians it's become such a strange thing. How do you negotiate the whole you know the the internet world? You know the, the changes that have happened and the difficulty. Of, for young musicians now is like seems like more than it was for us and it was pretty bad for us (laughs) (laughs) um and and the the flatlanders were a unique i mean as uh our mutual friend danny bland said it was a super group before um like you all became individually like then you left and became superstars and or not, uh, as star and then it, you returned and became a supergroup even though you <laughs> already had existed before. <laughs> yeah, we've had a, a pretty interesting history. Um, and I the, the first album that came out from the Flatlanders like was only released on eight track. That's crazy to me. Like yeah, actually, you know, really and truly, it wasn't even actually. You know, they made a few hundred copies or something like that. You know, and and they did make a few LPs, and but it never really got distributed or uh, 
it, it just it just uh, they they were they were trying to uh, uh, I think make you know have an explosive explosive opening as a novelty. You know that's the way they looked at it, the Nashville guys, and they uh, and it therefore and so they and they did they made eight tracks. As a matter of fact, I have uh, a couple of years ago, Joe Ely gave me for Christmas gave me a, a copy of the eight track that still had the the cellophane on it. <laughs> <laughs> that must be hard to find. <laughs> yeah, and. Uh, so, so actually, I have already had one. I have two copies of of the eight track, <laughs> and uh, but it it wasn't uh, in the U.S. It it never was actually released at the time, and then and it was uh, the first time it was released was in England, and it was ten years later. Oh, really? And the first. Uh-huh. And the first time it was released in the U.S. was ten years after that on Rounder. That's crazy because it's an influential album, and it's it's like I'm always fascinated how when somebody is that influential, but the labels or the powers that be can't see it. <laughs> or is that just what, or is that just what record labels do? I don't know. It's a it's a very strange thing. It's it's a it's a mystery to me. I I know. I always even at the time, you know. I I thought, you know. I mean, I definitely was from a country and western background. That's what. That's my, you know, where my vocal style comes from and everything. But we were much more. We they should have marketed us to, you know, to San Francisco and New York. The music we were doing was was would completely have gone along with what was happening at that time. You know, the the uh, the folkish folk revival thing. You know, and all the uh, Grateful Dead and and even you know Commander Cody and yeah, because there was the, a lot of people didn't I, I think don't know that there was a, a very big hippie scene with if that's the proper term throughout Texas or like hippie country like Willie Nelson and and you guys and there was some others absolutely was that did was that known in Texas that that you guys were part of that movement or were you was it was it just sort of like in your own world or if that makes sense well you know at the time it, it was we were we were uh you know, we were a small, our, our particular little bunch, you know, but we were a very small group in Lubbock of uh, musicians and artists and writers and, and uh, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of intellectuals from Texas Tech, you know, and, but our, we, and we were like very uh, anti-war you know, we were we were extreme. Uh, we were we were radicals. You know, and then and then in the context where the environment we were in was extremely the opposite. So uh, and so there were little enclaves like like us, kind of all over the place. And then we sort we a lot of us ended up finding each other in Austin. Um, do you see a lot of parallels with? that and today because it's so divided yeah yes the the polarization is so drastic and and it's uh it's interesting now though because everything it's so fragmented in in so many directions it's hard to see any any kind of uh uh i don't know Coalescing, I don't know. I'm hoping. I'm really hoping that the that the world situation now is is a, is going to lead to a. I think somebody said a a, a breakthrough rather than a breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and it it, it sort of seems it's, it's like everybody, you know, there's they're just. There seems to be a, a lot of uh, 
a potential hopefulness in what's going on. At the same time, there are such uh, drastic and, and dire, I don't know, you know, <laughs> non-hopefulness that that's very reasonable, <laughs> rational. Yeah. Not just paranoia, you know. It's, there's craziness going on, and yeah. So it's so it's there are some. I I do see some similarities, but also there, I think there's so so much differences just in in society at large. Things have changed so drastically with technology and everything. That it's really, I think it'll be a long time before we see any clear picture of. Uh, you know what? What really is is happening right now? Yeah. To to go back to uh, your music, I I saw that you and I, I believe Joe Ely both saw uh, Elvis Presley as young Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash play on the was it on the back of a flatbed truck? Well, no. When I saw him, I saw Buddy Holly, you know, on a flatbed truck. You know, over in the distance. But when when I saw Elvis and Johnny, they were uh, it, it was at, at the the Fair Park Coliseum. You know, it was a it was a, it was a large venue, lar- larger than any of the nightclubs. You know, it was a it was a real concert type of thing. And they were already pretty famous at that point. You know, the when, when I saw them live, I, it was around I think it was in '57 or so. And uh, it's possible. I can't remember. I can't remember if 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 Joe saw him, you know, in a earlier time. I, they wouldn't have been together. You know, when they were touring, by the time they were touring together, Elvis was already a star. You know. But that was a, a definitive moment for you as a child. That it that, that when you saw that, you knew you wanted to be involved in music. Oh, I, I already, uh, my dad was a guitar player, and I already was totally, deeply in love with music. But but that night just had an electrifying effect, you know. Of, I, I don't necessarily know that it, uh, that it I don't know if it's what caused me to want to be a musician, but I think it cinched it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh... And you, you all went to high school together. You and Butch, and, and did you all start playing together that early? No, we didn't. Oddly enough, uh, Butch and I were uh, we were uh, friends at school, who, but we lived in different neighborhoods. And when, you know, until we were old enough to have cars and stuff, you know, if you didn't live in the same neighborhood, you, you know, you hung out with people that that lived more close by you, and. Uh, and Butch and I knew each other and were friends at school. And both of us, uh, then much, much later on, uh, you know, became musicians. We we both had begun playing and, beca- you know, had become, uh, Butch started out on banjo, you know, and, uh, and it, was, it was the folk times, you know, <laughs> it was the, the, um, the uh, early '60s, late '50s and early '60s, that we were in high school, and well, but see, Butch and I knew each other since junior high school, since the seventh grade. We'd been friends for many years, but it wasn't until like the maybe in, even in our senior year, it might even have been our first year in college that that Butch and I discovered that we played music. And separate, it's so funny. That's when that's when Butch and I really started really hanging out together. And uh, I also I had become friends with Joe slightly before that, and uh, you know Joe and I did a lot of stuff. We did some touring together, just just the two of us hitchhiking and you know playing in little dives, and and we. uh, But then it was in so, and Joe's a little bit younger than Butch and I. He's a couple years younger, and he uh, it, it was. After, even after we had gone away, and I'd, I'd gone out to California, and then, and then had lived uh, down in Austin, and Joe had uh, gone off to Europe, and but I, I, I actually had had hitchhiked all around, and it just I was just a, a 
a street hippie basically for several years there. It's kind of my, I got married when I was 18, you know, and then and my marriage lasted a couple of years. And then in the period after that, I, I was, I didn't live anywhere. I just roamed around, but I did end, end up in 1968, uh, 69, going back to Austin. And then uh, in 1970, I went back to Lubbock from Austin. Joe went back to Lubbock from Europe. And Butch came back to Lubbock from uh, San Francisco. We, we, that was all within the same month of each other. And so I, uh, and I'd been, uh, Joe and Butch, I think, had met each other before. They, they didn't really know each other. And I kept telling Joe, hey, my old friend Butch is really a good songwriter. I mean, like really you know, top right. And you know how that is. It's kind of like the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he believed me, but you don't really believe anything till you really see it, you know? <laughs> and he, uh, we got together one night over at Butch's house and Butch played about two or three of his songs. And at some point Joe looked over at me with that look in his eyes. Oh, oh I see what you mean. <laughs> and ever after that, Joe, uh, strangely, Joe and I had had started hanging around each other as uh, a strange spinoff of a chance meeting between him and Pam Van Zandt. So <laughs> uh, he had picked up Pam Van Zandt hitchhiking. Pam Van Zandt was you know, totally unknown, and and Joe and I knew each other. We were we were actually mutual fans of each other. We used to go hear each other play in little old places in, in the kind of, we played in bootleg joints and coffee house places and stuff. And we, we'd go hear each other play, but we didn't really know each other real well. And Joe called me up and said, I got, he said, I picked up this hitchhiker and he had a backpack full of LPs. He didn't have any clothes in it. <laughs> he had LPs, only his LPs of his new record. And we'd never heard of him before, of course. And and, uh, and Joe said, "You got to hear this record." So we got together and listened to Towns Van Zandt, and that was the beginning of Joe and I being, you know, very close friends for you know permanently for the rest of our lives. It's, it was sort of triggered by Towns Van Zandt, strangely. It's 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 crazy to me, like all these. <laughs> Uh, you know, people coming together in such a, I mean, a, a, almost cosmic way, like meeting Towns Van Zandt, but like randomly picking him up. And it's crazy to me that like three, like I think about my high school, there wasn't three brilliant songwriters in my high school. There was probably three felons. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> like the fact that you guys all like grew up together and then created this incredible music is, I don't know, to me, it's, it's crazy how that happens sometimes. Oh, me too. I mean, it's very, very odd because, you know, as it happened, I didn't, I, I didn't know there was anything spectacularly amazing about it, but looking back on it, it looks that way to me. And I, and I also, I was friends with Terry Allen in, in the, uh, in high school. He was older than us, but, but I was, you know, acquainted with him and got, and knew his music. And th Terry was a, was really who inspired me to start writing to begin with. That's uh, what is it too? It seems like if you're going to be a musician out of Lubbock, you you have to be a genius because it's like I mean, there's a rich <laughs> there's a rich history of I mean, you know, Buddy Holly and and you guys. It's it's kind of crazy to me. There there were always uh, tons and tons of there was there was a lot of truly great musicians from Lubbock that never did get famous. And then there are also ones that did get famous and people didn't associate them with Lubbock. You know, so uh, uh, Bob Livingston was from Lubbock and he was, I don't know if you know him or about him, but he's just a giant. He's great. He, he played, he was the bass player in the Gonzo band, in the, the Lost Gonzo band with Jerry Jeff Walker. And uh, he had done a ton of stuff before that, but he's from Lubbock, and and uh, Mac Davis was from Lubbock. Oh yeah, I was a huge Mac Davis fan as a kid. 
yeah, and and so uh, we didn't know him. We we've met him. You know, I've met him a few times through the years since then, but I, I didn't know him back in those days. And, but there were it just it's it really does seem to me like there was a some a strange disproportionate number of, of really really creative people. It wasn't just musicians either. It was like all kinds of writers and artists. Do you think any of that has to do with environment? Just like maybe the the the, the location and the I don't know, like even the the weather. I mean, a lot of people equate. Uh, somebody, Greg Proops, the comedian, said that uh, no great writer ever lived in in a in a place that was like great weather. <laughs> it's like the no, no like like there's no great writers coming from the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's an interesting point. Well, you know, Ter- Terry Allen's theory was, we, you know, this for years and years, it's always been an ongoing joke because you know, people always, you know, people are always saying, what well, is it the water in Lubbock or, you know, what it was in, and Terry, Terry came with the theory with that it, it, there's so much great music out of Lubbock because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> that that kind of covers it. <laughs> Um. Yeah, and I heard a tale of that you all lived in a house together, and I think you once said uh, there was always somebody sleeping and always someone awake. And I don't, I, <laughs> yeah. I found that a very interesting uh, statement. <laughs> I just, uh, can you expound on that at all? Well, actually, I think it might have been Butch that first pointed that out, but it was, it was true. <laughs> it was, it, we, it was because we were. Uh, we were somehow just a a group of such extreme individualistic, um, uh, you know, bohemian, <laughs> and we were. It, it, our our house kind of became the, the you know the social center of our of our whole gang of friends. So there was uh, just there's usually like about maybe six or eight of us that actually lived there, you know, uh, that us and, and our girlfriends. And, uh, and then usually you have some hitchhiker passing through or, you know, and, and, uh, but then it's just the place that lots of people hung out and we kind of had music almost every night. We just sat around and played together. That's where we learned all of each other's songs. That was in the period that went uh, that ensued right after that time I talked about that we all came back that Joe and Butch and I happened to converge back on Lubbock at the same time, and uh, we ended up moving into this house together on Fourteenth Street. Um, when did you uh, begin starting uh, studying metaphysics? When did that um, come into play with this era? Well, I had I had been a reader, you know, for for all my life. I, you know, I, I loved reading from since I was a kid, and and I and I read. One thing is, I, I read. I was always into you know country music, but I also loved science fiction, and I was a avid science fiction nut. You know, back in the way early days of science fiction, I was up until a point. I had. I had read nearly all the science fiction that had ever been written because because there wasn't that much of it back then. You know, now I, I don't know if anybody could say that. You know, because it it, it kind of exploded. But in the back in the you know in my high school days, and I just I read a lot of stuff, and in some of the stuff I I was a, I was a fan of several of the English authors. The really, uh, you know, and Aldous Huxley was one of them, and Somerset Maugham had a great influence on me. And it, I started at some point. I kind of discovered that there was a thread through a lot of that stuff that was basically Oriental philosophy. That was uh, that all those guys were interested in, and and then later on, I found that you know that all the connection with the the Americans like Henry David Thoreau and Emerson were uh, very knowledgeable of, about like a, about, of Hinduism and then and then eventually some Buddhism. 
And so that was, it was reading books that got me into it originally. And then as it turned out, you know, that, that was part of, that was, that was a, you know, kind of a, a, an unspoken part of the thing is, is that because none of us, neither Butch or Joe or I were ever, uh, we, we weren't uh, preachy or religious, uh, you know, but we were deeply intellectually curious and we all shared all those books with each other. We, you know, we all uh, were, had become, had been interested in different aspects of uh, well, I, you know what? Now they call New Age stuff, but it was, uh, you know, we were we were very much into that way early on, and I also I had discovered the whole Earth's catalog uh, way early on when it was new. Uh, well, and uh, I'm not aware of what that is of the whole Earth's catalog. Yeah. Oh well, I then. Someday I can I can bend your ear for two days. <laughs> so okay, probably so not. The whole Earth, the whole Earth catalog was monumentally important in the history of the U.S. and, and a lot of people don't know it. They don't real they don't know the effect it had on the, uh, spreading things like computers and. And also just all kinds of ideas, and all, and in particular, it was it was a um, ecology in the time when ecology wasn't well known enough to be hated by <laughs> by the corporations. What led you? Because um, you ended up in an ashram in Colorado. I, I didn't. I didn't actually live in an ashram. I lived, but I lived in a community. There were ashrams there, and I had. I lived in for a few months. I lived in what was uh, officially be called an ashram in New Orleans before I moved to Denver. And but Denver was the the headquarters of the guru that, that I was you know, that I was studying and that I that I was practicing the the meditation that he taught and, and there was a I, there was a community there probably two thousand people there and so for most of the seventies I lived in that community but it wasn't I wasn't in an ashram and I you know I was a, 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 a lay practitioner I guess you'd say <laughs> but that was that was what I devoted my time to in the I went up and did that and kind of dropped my music career for a while. Did you completely stop playing while you were up there? No, no, we, I, I still played, but, you know, totally on, on the amateur, uh, you know, and uh, totally, uh, we played, we had bands and things, and, you know, there were a lot of great musicians involved in that thing, too, and we uh, we played a lot, we would play for fundraisers and stuff, and then also just sometimes at coffee houses and things, just for fun, you know, just for entertainment. But we were we weren't uh, playing in bars and uh, or, or doing, you know, we weren't pursuing the the the, the career aspect of it. We were playing music just because we loved music, and then also because as you know, music is always such a social glue in in just about all groups. You know, so I I, I um, meanwhile, I, you know, like I said, I had already lived in Austin, and I'd been part of the 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 origins of the you know of what they later on called the. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I played the grand opening of the Armadillo World Headquarters, which was where the, it was the place that eventually, you know, gave the stage for for the, the platform to, for Willie to work out at. You know, and uh, but that was that was a few years later that Willie came into the picture, and I had. Uh, but I had already left Austin by that point, gone back to Lubbock, and then that's when Flatlanders happened. And then that's when, then from there, I, I had gone on to Denver a couple of years later. Uh, would you, when, did you continue writing songs, or did you put all that away? 
I wrote a few songs in in that period, but it, it just wasn't what I devoted all you know much much time and effort to. And I, I guess at the time, I guess I it's hard hard to kind of that's that's been a long time ago now. You know, even that that was sort of. It seems like it was late into my career, but it wasn't. It was actually turned out to be way early into my career. I, uh, I was, uh, I guess, I was, for several years. I, you know, I, 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 for one thing, I studied uh, acupuncture for a while, and and like holistic healing, you know, in Oriental medicine, and also at the, at the same time, I studied computers. So this is in the mid seventies, and uh, then I eventually I eventually went back to Austin in nineteen eighty. So uh, meanwhile, while I was doing that, really what happened was Joe and Butch to a lesser degree, but Joe actually kept my career, my music career alive because he was recording my songs. And and so a lot of people, it, it was kind of ironic when I got when I got back to Austin. It was like I was a, both a newcomer and an old timer at the same time. Because I, you know, I knew a lot of the the uh, the club people. You know, I knew a lot of the club owners. I knew the, the music world there, and and Butch, and of course Joe was becoming a star by then. Was a star by then, and Butch was a local star. And and you know I started for being a writer for Joe, so I went back into a situation, sort of. I was perceived as a as a beginner by a lot of people because I you know I I hadn't been around so that I wasn't there when uh, we really came to town and when all the when all that started happening, but it but that. Uh, the, the people that really hung out with him, you know, the, that whole gang. But he originally played with a band called Frida and the Fire Dogs, and that and Marshall Ball was was Frida. That was a kind of a joke. But, and uh, and uh, John Reed, one of my best friends, was the guitar player in that band. And uh, but so Willie, uh, Willie kind of, Willie sort of moved uh, uh, his. Entourage, you know, his his world kind of uh, blended into the that Austin music world that I had been a part of earlier, and and of course, really, he was already on the way to being a you know international superstar, and I was. Uh, so when I came back, I was it was it was almost seen as if I was a you know a, a interloper into this thing <laughs> that actually I'd been part of at the beginning. Yeah, you laid the a lot of the groundwork down for that. Well I don't I don't know. I, I don't think I can claim that I was there as it happened, you know. <laughs> there were a whole bunch of people kind of actually doing that. but I was there I was uh uh you know I was beginning to make a uh, I, I had a following, and you know, was a, uh, and and it it was, you know, we we were hippies doing country music, which was, uh, that was sort of the recipe that allowed Willie to come in and really, uh, you know, have a massive audience in. Uh, in Texas, you know, in, in Central Texas, and uh, it's a, it's a, so Willie Willie was kind of one. He was sort of the catalyst for both for. Uh, I, I don't know how to say this exactly. Austin, the the thing was Austin was actually a genuine music town before it had the reputation for being a genuine music town. There was just tons of great music there because there was the whole setup for it. You know, there's a great audience. There's a great, uh, there were wonderful venues, and Austin is just an interesting place. And uh, so, then when the city began to, especially after Willie came, 
you know, the, the city began to go, oh, this is a this is a selling point. <laughs> you know, this is a uh, we should we should take advantage of this. They, they started to deliberately do that. And but the thing was, it wasn't artificial. It wasn't phony because it really you know they built on something that was actually there. That's always been my perspective on it. And and like I said, I. I, I really did get to watch it grow, even though for part of it I missed out on it from from the distance. I actually, I kept up, you know, with communication, and I visited Austin a lot during the time that I was in Denver, but it just wasn't part of the scene. And now it's it's one of the major cities for music. I mean, I know people who move there to be a part of music. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And and it was it's like I said, it was it's the kind of thing where if it if it had, if that had been an artificial creation, you know, that that really wouldn't have worked. But it, because it was it was based on a reality of uh, you know a city deciding to nurture this sort of raw material it had, and you know a lot of places didn't do that. You know, Lubbock never Lubbock never until fairly recently sort of never embraced the fact that it had so much great um, music history and talent, you know, which but Austin did and it's and so as a result, of course, it's it's changed. You know, it's changed pretty drastically. But it, and then, you know, South by Southwest started happening, and that really altered the whole uh, environment. But it thing about it is, is it never has ruined it. All of the all the changes that have happened haven't. They've changed it, but they haven't ruined it. I was curious about that because I, I was. It seems like it used to be. Uh, or an organic scene where people just end up there, and now it's a destination for some people to be. Yeah, right. And I'm just curious if, like, people are unwelcoming. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, Portland's changed as Portland, Oregon has changed as well. And uh, you know, the the people that are from there are like, get out. <laughs> it's like, like they, it's, they're, they're not unwelcoming, but they also like, especially they're not. They're like, hey, but you're not from here, and it's it's interesting. And I just I, I don't know. I don't, I think that I think that Austin. I think that's something that always was interesting about Austin was that it was such a friendly and welcoming place already. Uh, you know, that was kind of part of the thing of why musicians were there to begin with. Uh, and it to agree. Now, now things are you know the changes are so huge and so rapid that that's a, Austin itself is a perfect example of that. Of God, who knows what this is going to turn into? Because you know there's so many skyscrapers and it's so uh, expensive to live there and all that. So that that's bound to take a toll. But but I know for a fact that there's still plenty of like you said. There's there's the the uh, uh, ambitious, you know, climbing musician syndrome, but there's also, there's still right along with it, the organic, you know, homegrown stuff is still there and, and they, they blend with each other. Yeah. People get discovered, you know, young people get discovered by, by the pros there, you know? It's interesting to me because, like you said, there's skyscrapers, and I don't know that city well, but I know other cities that are they're changing so quickly, and it's hard not to. I fear that they're killing their culture because they're like, uh, yeah, me too, and I, and I, and but I don't see it as being a, a local, an Austin thing. I see that being more like a worldwide thing, you know, like absolutely. A, I mean, like I'm from, a technological thing. Yeah, I mean, San Francisco is the shell of the city it once was, and. I mean, no one could afford to live there, and Portland, Oregon's becoming the same thing. And it's like they tear down these great old clubs and restaurants and bars, and I'm like, what do you have? For like one big mall? <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like it's. I know. I, I have a, I have a giant love for San Francisco. You know, I I've I spent a lot of time there. You know, I I live I I nearly moved well to to Berkeley and San Francisco in the period 
before I went to Austin, before I went back to Austin, I, you know, it was sort of a toss up for me. And, you know, the wind could have blown me a little, could have shifted a little bit, and I would have ended up there. I loved, and I, and then, of course, you know, I was real uh, much involved with the, with the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, which has become one of the major uh, music outposts of the world. Although now, but, you know, with the, with the pandemic and everything, who knows what the who knows what's going to happen with anything with live music? There's so much uncertainty. But but San Francisco, I've I've watched San Francisco go from being just wonderful for for you know people like me, you know, wondering itinerant musicians and stuff to to being just very difficult to live in. Yeah, I've been going there since the early 90s, and I, my wife and I got married there, actually, but it's just, it's, the last time we were there, it was just, uh, it was just so expensive, <laughs> and it's like a lot of the old uh, Italian restaurants or what, and, uh, uh, you know, like in North Beach are just being shut down because they can't afford- I know, I know. North Beach is so, just unrecognizable. It's really, and it was one of my favorite places in the world, it was a des- I mean, that was like a, 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 a sort of mecca for me to go to North Beach because of, you know, the folk scene there and Lenny Bruce and all these, you know, there was so much. Yes, that, yeah, that, exactly. That came out of there. And of course, you know, the books, City Lights, which is. Yeah, it's been, it's been one of our rituals. We always go there at least once, even if we're in town, just only for, for a day. You know, the, the City Lights is. Is a given for me. <laughs> uh, how did you and Dave Alvin start working together? Because which is a great. You guys are. I, I I love everything you guys do together. Like it's it's just a magical duo with you two. Well, it's funny. It's, it's it's an odd history because because Dave and I had been real good friends for many many years for like 30 years or something and uh, and once again we were we were mutual fans but we never ever had played together we played shows together you know shows we were on the same show but not in the same bands with each other or anything and uh, but but we just had just personally always hit it off. We always hung out with each other if we were in the same town, you know, if, or, you know, if, if, uh, if we were on the same shows and stuff, we always did a lot of stuff together. And then I was at this point where I was, I, I jokingly said all the time that I was retired. I wasn't really, but I just wasn't playing much and wasn't, uh, trying to much. This is like three years ago. And uh, somebody came up with the idea, said, so, so do you want to do some shows with Dave Alvin, just the two of you? And I said, yeah, I'd love that. I, you know, that and I kind of envisioned it. I, I figured we would trade songs and stories. And then, so when we got together, and even Dave, Dave told me later that, that the very first show, which was in Benton, Texas, he said he realized on stage it was just the two of us with acoustic guitars and we were trading songs, but it turned out that we knew so many things in common that we, especially Dave could just jump right in with all, all the old blues stuff that I knew. I did, you know, it's doing all the old folky kind of stuff that I used to do when I played a solo. And Dave knew all of it and, and was, you know, just a master of it. And he'd just jump right in. And then vice versa, I knew a lot of. We we had that in common. It turned out that we both had, uh, in our learning years, Dave's, Dave's younger than me, but still at, at the same time that I was learning to play, he was learning to play, and we had we had both been into the very exact same music. So, uh, and, and Dave said that, I started to say, that, that first night, later on, he, he told me that that first night, he said, we Jimmy and I are going to have to make a record together. And he didn't say that then. But, uh, 
so then about we toured for that whole year and it was fun it was just good and fun you know i hadn't toured that much in a really long time i enjoyed every bit of it and it was just me and dave and danny so and i you know i didn't know danny before that and we just immediately hit it off and it just came to be that you know we're here we were these one old guy <laughs> and two two uh some pretty soon gonna be old guys. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and but we were we were like having the fun of kids, you know, like we were like we were young young musicians on the road together, except except different from the old days because we had gigs, you know, <laughs> we had gigs booked before we got there. And, and uh, but anyway, so, so the three of us spent that year, and then and then Dave got it all together with the record company and everything, and we made the record that he that he envisioned that first night. Did you guys write the stuff together, or write separately, or how did that work? No, the the only one that we wrote together was that was that title song, the Downey to Lubbock song, and which and Dave really instigated that. We were we were going to write. I was going to finish writing uh, Geronimo and Billy the Kid, and uh, he uh, they uh, showed up at the studio. You know, like the next day after he had shown it to me, and I'd, I'd kind of, kind of, I'd, I'd, I was thinking, no, oh, this will probably take me about a week or something. But he showed up the next day, and he had just finished the whole thing. <laughs> it was great, and I knew it was better than I could have done. But we did, uh, and now we have gotten together. So everything got interfered with now, of course, with all this, the, the coronavirus and thing. But we, uh, Dave and I have. We were getting together last year to do some writing together, and now and now that's put on hold. I guess uh, does writing we, over Zoom not seem appealing at all? Well, well, I think we'll do that. It's just it's kind of slow, you know. It's kind of and everything's been kind of disrupted. Yeah, it's so much that. It's interesting that so many people are doing things over Zoom, and I'm like, like I see there's improv shows and comedy shows, and I'm like, I, yeah, I, I, I like I, I don't know if I'm being curmudgeonly or or, or stubborn, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. Like that sounds terrible, <laughs> and, but maybe, <laughs> but, but maybe I just okay. need to uh, alter, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's going to be the rest of our lives. Who the, who the hell knows? Yeah. Actually, you know, yeah, uh, I misunderstood your question before. I didn't, I didn't catch the Zoom part, and you know, I've, I've done just a couple little things that people invited me to. My son is doing those. He's doing a little, uh, like a, uh, you know, presenting his songs, but also doing a little interview show with a number of the of the the younger people from Austin, and me too, though, <laughs> not just younger people. <laughs> where he did an interview show with me on his. Oh, that's cool. I I, I, I guess it's probably Facebook. I don't know. I like. Yeah, yeah. You should look up. Uh, look up. It's Colin Gilmore. No, we're way out of here in the boonies, and I. It's it's this is this. We can't. Oh, that's, uh, that seems better. Now. I didn't know if you were on a cordless or something. I I am. I'm, I'm on my iPhone and it's and it's lighter. And so there, it, it's possible that it could lose it. It, it. It's we're like miles from nowhere out here. I know where you are because we talked about it the other day. It's, oh, that's right. That's right. Which we, is crazy to me because I mean that's where I went camping as a child uh, for most of the seventies. Well, you know, we have this house here, and it's we have it. You know, it's an Airbnb. We have it. We put it up on Airbnb. But for our friends, you're welcome to come here and not have to pay an Airbnb fee. <laughs> I appreciate it. my father's ashes are actually spread in Big Ben. So, uh, and I haven't been since I was a kid. So, I actually would love to see it again. 
sometimes when things get settled down in the in the you know the quarantining is over and everything keep it keep it in mind i appreciate that and uh I, I don't know if this is an odd question, but it was something that hit me on my morning hike. And I was I was curious of what is important to you when you're writing a song. Is there is there anything or how do you just let things come to you? That, yeah, the, it, the way it works for me is that is if an idea occurs to me and then re-occurs to me, if 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 it if if it kind of sticks and it comes back again, I'll, I'll I'm, and lots of times I I've noticed it, it it's happened down through the years. Most of the songs that most of my song ideas have happened while I was driving. I don't know why that is, and I, I actually I've, I've heard some other musicians say that same thing. But uh, if the song if the if the idea occurs and then if I if it pops in again later, or maybe if I make a little recording of it or some, or, or write it down, and then a few days later I kind of come across it again, and if I still like it several times, it's like, in other words, the idea comes to me kind of like from out of the blue. But then if, if I... If it's something that I, I, I go, you know what? This is good. I like, this is a good idea. I'm, I'm going to do this. Then I have to work on it. Then I have to sit down and work. <laughs> but but the idea itself, and I've had a few, you know, two or three songs that happen where they just happen. They just sort of wrote themselves quickly. But mostly I have to labor over them, and I'm very slow. I never have been prolific like Butch or Joe or Dave. Dave is prolific, too. But you have a pretty huge body of work. It's not like you're short on record yeah. albums. <laughs> I know, unbelievable. It's like an avalanche. And uh, but it was uh, the hanging out with Dave and Danny, and and then the band, the band, you know, the band, except for Chris Miller, uh, uh, Lisa, and Brad were old friends of mine. In fact, not just old friends, but Lisa had actually played with me in Austin when she was a teenager. And Brad was in the band, my my best band, the band that I toured with in the time, you know, when, when I was on Electra, and that was, they were really promoting me. So, I, you know, so that, that was old connection. But then uh, Chris Miller, I didn't know but for I somehow I had never gotten to know him in Austin, even though he was there a long time. But I became in the in the course of touring with them, it became the that that little uh, gang of us, you know, that band and, and Danny. We we just it's kinda of like we became a family. And uh the uh I'm 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 really hoping that we're gonna do some more recording together. I think we're I think we're kind of planning on it, but we also know that everything's up in the air these days. And uh, is there? Any- I think I was starting to make a point before that, and I, I lost my thread. But maybe not. Oh, I, didn't see, I just I, it's interesting because I watched a friend of mine's band play like they did a benefit for Philly like uh, nurses in Philadelphia and it was a six or seven piece band all in different parts of the country playing. And it was like, you know, through, through zoom. And it was like incredible. Cause I'm like, I don't know if my mind is simple, but I'm like, this is amazing that these people are able to do this from different parts of the country. And I'm like, is that a, can a record be recorded that way now? Or does that just seem totally unappealing yeah. to you? I think it's possible that with with the right uh, uh, software and all that kind of stuff, it's it's difficult because it's uh, uh, you know the latency thing and all that and get getting good sound. But uh, musicians seem to always find a way to do something with what they've got. You know <laughs> that's why that's why there were jug bands in the <laughs> old days. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and you know a lot of 
best music in the world was made by people that that couldn't afford a guitar and had to make their own and you know all the old blues stuff was like that yeah so I don't know I, I think I think musicians will figure out how to do something with all this that'll be oh you know I this is this is odd I, I just just before you called I mean I mean minutes before you called uh, we had gotten a message that uh, one of my best friends, one of one of the best musicians I know, and and I know a lot of musicians, you know, and his, his name is Chris Gage. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all, but and he's all he's he's uh, he plays everything, and but anyway, uh, we just he's he's been presenting. I was, in fact, I was going to mention that he did a Zoom thing where it actually is good. It actually. Uh, in fact, I'd recommend you to go look at it. Chris Gage and Christine Albert is his wife. And this is another whole story. You know, they're like intertwined with all the different sorts. But Chris played with me for years. He was my band. You know, he was he would be the lead guy if I had a whole band, or he would be just the two of us. You know, <laughs> he was. Uh, uh, anyway, but I, I, he thinks that he might have the COVID. Oh, really? Yeah, he just sent this message, and, and they've been really strictly quarantined, and he'd been they've been doing this thing from their house. He and Christine are, you know, uh, close quarantined together, but they've been and they've been having this thing where they had a where a friend would come. And stand outside the window, and they had, and they hooked up with headsets. And, it's, and Chris is a real good engineer and sound genius, and and, and he's such a great musician. And he's, he had these guests that are such great musicians that it's really good. It's a really good show. And you can look it up it's on the Facebook or something, or or you know. Maybe I can maybe I can text you the link or something, but I'd really recommend it. Is some uh, Janet, my wife said that it 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 reminded her of like like vaudeville or something. <laughs> like oh. It turned into this funny comedy show with this great music, such great music that. And it really did, like you said earlier, you know, like about being a luddite. <laughs> I, I, I kind of had the same, the same feel. A lot of just it's it's only it's only fun because it's your friends doing it. You know, <laughs> it doesn't really sound good. And but the stuff that uh, Chris and Christine were doing it really also sounds good. I made a note, so I'll can see I, if I could find it. If I can, I'll uh, I'll text you and see if if you could. Okay, yeah, yeah, do that. And, but anyway, uh, he. He he has the symptoms and he got tested. So it'll be several several days before he knows what he's really feeling bad. And it's really that it's really scary because I know they 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 live in Austin. We live outside of Austin, about about twenty miles, um, and we've been really very careful. Yeah, we've been in, incredible. We have a a daughter that's two weeks old, so we're. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. But it's like, I have to go to the store. It's like, I have to get yes. things. So it's, uh, it's, but you know, you just do what you can. I just, yeah. Uh, you know, who knows what uh, her little immune system is like. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm in that position. Uh, Janet has, has to do all that for it. Janet is like, you know, 10 years younger than me. And I'm in that, I'm in the, I'm highly at risk because of my age, and then also I have a, a, a like a probably a congenital condition in my in my bronchia that makes me susceptible to to pneumonia, and I've had it uh, three or four times, so I'm very much at risk. So she won't let me go out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you should. You probably got a backyard, yeah. Because it's like my wife hasn't left the house in weeks, and I mean, I I believe I do a hike every morning with the dogs, but I stay away from everybody. But it's like, yeah, yeah. We live out in the country, so we have we have five acres, and we have a 
and we have a swimming pool. It's, it's rustic, but very nice out where we live. And it's, it, this, this hasn't, for me personally, this has not been a hardship. But things like this, and, and, and things like, you know, John Prine was a friend, and losing him right up, right away was a, a big blow to me and, you know, all of our friends. And now, just now, like I said, just within the last few minutes, finding out that Chris might have it, it's, it's, really, it's really jarring. Yeah, it's. Uh, I have a friend who just tested positive, and it's, you know, I mean, you don't know because it could be, it, it could be nothing. It, nothing could happen, or everything could in in the. Room. That's it. This, that's the that's the strange, uh, uh, this state that we all find ourselves in right now. We're we're all in a Stephen King book. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's what it feels like, though. It's, uh, I'm a big fan, but don't want to be in one of his books. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, I... But you, you know, my friend, a friend of ours, I named Larry Wright, Lawrence Wright, you you may have heard him, He's, he writes for The New Yorker, uh-huh. oh, yeah. and, and he had already written a book that was scheduled for release later, but, uh, and I believe it was, I think the name of it's The End of October, and, but they've already put it out because he he predicted this in such so strangely in so many strange ways that it, it's eerie. Is it fiction? And, it's fiction, yes, but it's based on a ton of research. Uh, he's he's the guy. He wrote uh, the book called Going Clear about Scientology. Oh yeah. And he and he's also you know he he's a he's a great writer, and he's and he's also just a just a relentless researcher. And so, and many years ago, I had read a book called The Coming Plague. About twenty years ago, I read, and it, it predicted this. It predicted it said this was going to happen sometime. So it's. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of it's, it's really kind of sad because it could have been prepared for if there's a teeny dot more of intelligence amongst the leadership. Yeah, we should have been ta- as soon as it, something happened in China, we should have been preparing and taking care of. Uh, but we, we or they, it would be more they because I would have. <laughs> it's like, but yeah, they just ignored it, and it's it's inferior. Yeah, yeah. And I, I couldn't imagine what it's like to to the anger that must have come with losing someone with this because it's already a traumatizing thing to lose someone you care about. But when it could have been prevented, yeah, it's galling. It's mind blowing, really. Yeah, I, it's. Um, I'm I'm thankful. I've known people who've been sick, but they've pulled through. So, but it's. Me too. I, we have a couple of friends in New York that have gone through it. Yeah, I've got a ton of friends in New York. A couple skedaddled out to the country, but they're running out of... Uh, they rented a cabin till June, and they're like, after that, we don't know. I'm like, I don't know. I hope it's, I hope it's better by then. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, um, I want to uh, thank you for your time. It, I've, I hope you enjoyed this. I s- certainly thought it was great oh i have yeah i i really i i, I want to talk to you in person sometime and tell you some of those <laughs> further stories i would uh, yeah and i've i've never seen you perform live which would also be is is on my high on my list so it uh hopefully it won't be over zoom it will be in person i know <laughs> that's what i keep hoping but uh uh I, yeah, and I, I I truly hope to see you again talk again because this has been great and uh, you know you're a brilliant brilliant man. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's fun to it's, it's fun to do an interview that you enjoy. Some of them are not fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've had some that weren't fun, so I get it. <laughs> uh, I've had some where people were just like, yes, no. And I'm like, you know, this is like a conversation, right? (laughs) 
I'm not your, <laughs> right. I, I'm not your parent chastising you. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was kind of like that in the early days, and then somehow at some point it went. I went from not being able to respond to not being able to stop. <laughs> I've had people who, who who will test me like it's like they want to see if I can. I don't know, take it or something. I don't know. I, I had one musician uh, and then he warmed up to me and then he wouldn't let me, he wouldn't let me leave. Like he was like, kept showing us stuff around his house. And when we were like, okay, we got to go. He's like, what? No, we got, I got, so I guess I, I guess I won or what? so, and I'm, and I'm still friends with him to this day. So that says something. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 been a great pleasure. I almost don't want to get off the well, phone. Well, you too. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, say, hi, say hi to Danny if you talk to him. I will. I will, and I hope to see you in, in the person soon. Yeah, me too. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review it on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Also, go to themattdwyer.com and check out all things Matt Dwyer. My Patreon, merchandise, you name it, it's there. And thank you for supporting podcasting. I hope you come back and listen again. Thank you very much.